My name is Kevin Tony, and you're now listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. And today we're tapping in for another uncommon conversation uh, with a guest that I have been looking forward to talking to for a few weeks now after uh, I ran across uh, a video that he posted on his Instagram feed. It came up on my on my timeline as, as you know, something that I might be interested in checking out. And, and ironically, Instagram got it right uh, for once. And um, it ended up being something that I was interested in. And I reached out to this guy and, and he agreed to come on and uh, I'm glad to have him. So uh, everyone, uh, please welcome Will Roosh. How's hey, it going, Kevin, man? Thank you. It's going well. Thanks for having me on. What do, what video was it that you that showed it, up? That they it got was, right? uh, yeah, it came up on my, uh, you might be interested in this because yeah. I looked at this. It was, uh, it was a conversation between you and the two uh, teachers of the year. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so... Uh, I immediately honed in on that. So, mm. you know, I, I, so to give give the people some background, uh, you host a podcast called Cylinder Radio, uh, yeah. which I, I highly recommend the listeners to subscribe and listen listen to that podcast uh, for sure. And you're also a high school teacher. Yeah, yeah. And on, on top of that, you're a high school teacher in Los Angeles. I am. Yep. I, yep. I've 17 years. I've been teaching in Los Angeles, different schools, different school environments, but okay. yeah, I'm still in the classroom. Okay, good. So this is going to be good. And, and I'm glad you started by saying how long you've been teaching because mm -hmm. I was going to ask that. Um, and, and there's a reason that I wanted to find out how long you've been teaching. And so um, the other thing I'm, I'm extremely interested in is the fact that you teach civics. And is that something that you've always taught? Uh, no, I taught uh, government and economics the whole round, like from my okay. first year of teaching. Uh, but then I'd say five years ago, 2019, I believe, uh, I started, uh, I, I wrote my own class. I wrote civics, which is a little bit different than like a standard government right. and economics class. I was able to write it myself, get it UC approved. And now I, I teach that. Nice. Okay. And, and that's really what jumped out at me because civics is not something you see taught in schools that much uh, anymore. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's strange. Uh, my mother-in-law is a retired school teacher from New York, uh, New York City public schools. And, you know, when I told her you taught civics, she said, I can't remember the last time I saw that in school and I was a teacher, you know? Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really strange. And, so just to start there, like how how has that been to teach civics and and focus in on government and how our government actually works and the the reception that you get from your students when you start to talk about that relative to the climate now where government and politics and all of that is such a polarizing topic? Yeah, so um what happened was I've been at this school at this point for like five or six years and they really liked what I was doing. They liked my style and everything. And there was an opening for a new elective. And they said, if you could teach a class kind of on anything, what would it be? And my first, um, 
um, inclination was to teach a class on 1968 because I teach U.S. Okay. history too. And I was like, there a lot happened in 1968. It was like in the the midst of the the Vietnam War and civil mm-hmm. rights and Martin Luther King was killed and Bobby Kennedy was killed and the riots in Chicago. There's so many things going on. Mm-hmm. But that then I I kind of questioned that because I always kind of question myself and everything. And I asked some other people. I said, what's missing? really from from society though at large because even just focusing on 1968 would be like about a broader application to to what's going on today and i thought i'd just cut right to it and say you know what's missing today is civics and what the way i kind of view civics as opposed to like just government like how many senators there are and things like that is really it's it's the um the learning about the rights and responsibilities of being a citizen. So you need both. You need to have, you know, your rights and the rights will be focused like, um, like in 1968, your civil rights, you know, your civil liberties as they are written out in the constitution. And then your civil rights to make sure that your rights are equally applied um, regardless of your, you know, race, gender, you know, religious, you know, proclivity, whatever it is. But then there's also the responsibilities element. I think in schools, we focus so much on your rights. I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed to do that. Right. Things like that, that you're not going to, well, what are your responsibilities now? Once you have Mm -hmm. freedom, which is so important to America, like what do you do with that freedom? What are your responsibilities that you have to yourself and to your, you know, fellow citizens and people in your society, your community, et cetera, et cetera. So I I felt like that was a better catch all for a lot of things that I saw that was uh, missing um, in, in in American society in like the you know 21st century. So I was like, all right, this is, is going to be the thing that I'm leaning into. And the students really respond to it because it's all directly applicable. That's okay. not like, it's not like if, you know, learning most subjects in school, it's really difficult because you and I as adults, like we don't read or listen to or watch anything that we don't want to, or that we don't see as having sure. value in our lives. Right. So, but if you could take that to high school, I mean, a lot of what's done in high school, the students don't directly say like, if I learn this, I am going to whatever, like get a girlfriend or I'm going to, you know, uh, be able to buy the car I always want. Like it's really hard for them to make those connections. And civics is one of those that at least the way I teach it, which is directly linked to, if you know this, you will benefit today, next week and in 10 years. So they, they seem to respond really well to it. I love it because so when I look at public school, the, the way it's set up now, a lot of what is being taught is is really is 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 really useless once we get out of school. And so to hear you say that when you you're teaching, you know, so there's something that they can apply today, tomorrow, and ten years from now. Like to me, that's that's paramount in terms of what you know the things that kids should be should be learning in school and the way, you know, public schools should be, you know, focusing in that area. And so I I can appreciate that. I can appreciate hearing that because those are some of the things that, you know, I grew up in Michigan and, um, you know, I graduated from high school in 1997, just just to tell my age, you know, I'm 43 years old. And when I was in school, a lot of the stuff that we learned, you know, the the elective courses, they were the courses that, you know, helped us prepare for, for life, you know, life skills assessment and, and, you know, just preparation beyond, you know, high school and college and, you know, learning things, you know, so 
but because they were the elective courses, they weren't taken as seriously as, mm -hmm. you know, the courses that you needed for, you know, your core uh, curriculum. And, and I think that there should be a shift in my opinion that we need to move more towards like a more balanced system of, of learning where kids are getting these practical uh, life lessons and, and life skills to help them, you know, be contributing citizens and, and to understand their responsibilities. That's, that's, it's, it's heavy when you think about that, but it's, it's a problem that is, is easily solved when you can implement a class like yours that will teach students. And so along with the kids and the, your students, you know, receiving it, you know, how, how are you seeing the response? Like, are, are their parents, you know, involved? Are they seeing the benefit of what they're learning from your classroom? Yeah, the, the feedback that I get is really um, positive. I mean, it's part of the way that like, I mean, if you look at my Instagram, you listen to my podcast, like I, I jump into a lot of culture war topics. Like I yes. talk about transgender issues and I talk about race and, and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things that a lot of, um, I'd say American school teachers shy away from to say the right. least. I think I'm actually very, one of very few um, kind of public facing uh, school teachers that talk about this stuff. But the reason I'm allowed to do this is because uh, the 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 feedback that I get from the families and from the students and my administration is all positive. So right. they're like, okay, we might get letters every once in a while that says that I'm you know a bad person for all these different reasons. I platform this person or whatever it might be, but they go, this anonymous email is not going to supersede what we know for the past ten years of what you've done for our students and what the families say about you and stuff like that. So they, I'm at a private school now, so okay. they they know where their bread is butter, and they're like, all right, these families really like him, so I'm not gonna gonna let go of that. I mean, that, yeah. that is a risk because if one of the families doesn't like me, then it's 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 a that's one of the downsides to a private school, but. Um, but the, the feedback's been really, really positive. And a lot of families say like my kids showing interest in things that are happening in the world where they didn't before. You know, right. Yeah. I'm with you. A lot of subjects in school, like, you know, covalent bonds and knowing mm. what magma is <laughs> right. and stuff like that. It's like, we don't apply that ever. It's like, you know, right. these, these mathematical problems are like, you have a fence that you, or you have a yard yeah. that this many meters by this many meters and their fence is this much. How much fence did you buy? It's like, Buy too much and then return the rest because they'll take right. you know what I mean? Like it's so silly. And the kids know this stuff. And it's really hard to learn something that you don't connect with. I tell you know, my my fellow teachers, my peers get annoyed by me because I tell my students all the time, every day, I'm like, ask your teacher how learning this today is going to benefit your life. <laughs> oh, and they're like, they get mad at us whenever we ask that. I'm like, well, that's their job. My yeah. job is to translate why this information will benefit you. I don't think my job is to give you the information because your phone has more information than I have. Right. React teachers are supposed to be translators. This is why this this information will actually help you to be successful by whatever definition of success you're trying to aim for. I love it. And you're absolutely right. And those teachers, I think they know it too, but they I think a lot mm -hmm. of teachers are afraid to step away from the curriculum. Yeah. And I'll 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 back that up by saying I had a conversation with a a a lady who's a school teacher. She's actually getting ready to retire uh, from Michigan schools, uh, Detroit public schools to be specific. And 
she and I had a conversation last summer that turned into a debate that went on for the entire summer, several months it went on. And we debated in the DMs and she was telling me about a, you know, why she thought that critical race theory was good for the schools. And this, this, this lady, she, this, the teacher that I was talking to, she happened to be an older white lady. And she and I were talking and she said, well, because we need to, the kids need to know history. The kids, they need to know that, you know, this is what history happened. And I asked her, you know, after I let her go on and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you got to history class and the curriculum was saying to teach about, you know, um, the twenties and you're talking about the roaring twenties and the great depression and everything that's happening at that time. I said, because that's not in the curriculum. I said, because the curriculum is saying, this is the section we talk about this in the book. I said, would it hurt you to say, now I want to take some time to talk about black wall street and what happened in Tulsa in 1921, you know, would that bother you? I said, is there a problem with that? I said, would you get in trouble because that would be viewed as going against the curriculum? And she said, yes, that would be viewed by the school board as going against the curriculum. And so my point to her was like, do you see how silly that sounds? Because if it's a part of history, why can't you just include it instead of bringing it in under the umbrella or the guise of critical race theory? If you're saying you want the you want history taught, then why, why not just include it when you when you start to talk about history? And she said, well, because it's not in the textbooks and it's not, you know, here and it's not in the curriculum. And she couldn't wrap her head around that. And that's that's why I say, like, I think a lot of teachers are afraid to deviate from the curriculum that they have, even though they know that there's something that that's something more to give within that lesson plan that they may be going over for whatever, whatever that topic is for that day. But they don't want to deviate from it. And she couldn't tell me why she couldn't give me a good reason why she, you know, wouldn't deviate from it. And and so I, I kind of see that, you know, and we went back and forth. I mean, about why she thought critical race theory was great. And I, I don't think it's necessary for a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons is because I don't think our kids are very well prepared to wrap their minds around it. And she couldn't understand what I meant by that. And I finally told her, I said, well, if your kids are not reading proficient, and they're not doing math at grade level, then why is it important for them to understand critical race theory? If they their brains won't allow them to, you know, they can't read it, they can't understand it, you know, so why don't we work on them being reading proficient or math proficient or being up to, you know, grade level before we start adding extra stuff? And she couldn't see my point. And so in mm-hmm. your in your travels, do you see a lot of that you know, amongst your coworkers where they're kind of like afraid to bump up against the curriculum. Um, yeah. So, um, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, but, I, but I'm, I'm on the same page as you, Kevin. Like, so, uh, one of the reasons why I left public school, I didn't want to leave public school, mm-hmm. but I couldn't fit into the mold of public school because it was so driven by standards and by standardized tests. Right. You had to teach the test because, 
uh, it was, you know, like the, the tail end of the no child left behind. So a lot of mm -hmm. the funding came from the, the test scores and things like that. So I would be in situations where a, a kid would say like, Hey, yeah, like give it a good example. Like, Hey, so what's the deal with the, these, these Tulsa riots that I saw on the news or something like that. Can we cover that? And I look at the standards. I'm like, it's not going to be on the test. It's not on the standards. Mm -hmm. So no, sorry. I can't <laughs> teach that. And like, yeah. I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, if a, a, if a 10th grade student is showing curiosity about history and I can't help them to satisfy that curiosity, then I'm not doing my job. Right. And I would give pushback and pushback and pushback. And then eventually I, I just had to find a job uh, in an environment that I could kind of make up my own kind of um, my own pace and my own standards. Cause a lot of, because I'm in California and the private schools here don't have to follow the mm. California state standards. When yes. it comes to like, like what, so, so like you have to teach this and this way and things like that. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people are leaving the profession. Honestly, people say that it's because they're not getting paid well and stuff like that. But the average teacher salary in LA public schools is like $75,000 a year. Mm. I mean, it could be more LA is expensive, right. but, but I don't think it's that nearly as much. I don't think people get into teaching really for the money. I think they get into it for the freedom to, to do what they want to do. And you know, the whole school system is this is this is built on obedience. The whole thing is about making good workers and exchanging your curiosity for compliance. And I mm. think that teachers are just kind of part of that system as well. So yeah, I think they're they want to to do their own thing, but they're kind of a part of this very rigid system of this is the way you do things. Um, and that, so I, I agree with, with that kind of sentiment a lot. And I think that's a big problem with these massive public school systems, uh, and standardized tests and, mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. But you mentioned like reading proficiency and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of city Baltimore schools and oh, stuff man. like that, that have, I think it's like 0% zero percent of yeah, or like I did reading, a whole podcast on Baltimore schools, man. It's it's unbelievable, man. Like, like what do we like? We're we're obviously failing. So why are we not making drastic changes to what's going on? And no wonder parents are trying to pull their kids out of school. But that's not easy either because parents have jobs. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're living in a in a tough neighborhood. You're a single mom or something like that, and you're trying to hold down two jobs just to keep your food on the table. Like you can't pull your kids out of school. You don't have time to look at all right. the different charter schools and make sure that they're okay and stuff like that like your bandwidth is low so there's a lot of problems going on in the school system it's a lot yeah it's a lot yeah. there and and i see I, I see it and you know my my kids i have you know two small children my son is is getting ready he's on his way to third grade and and we're oh, in public too. schools yep yep he, yeah. he's and we're in public school right now and i'm and i, I live in charlotte and so okay. I'm very, you know, my radar is is on high alert for what's happening within the public school system. And and he's been in this school since kindergarten. And we've been fortunate enough to, you know, not have any issues that I see where we have to pull him out uh, for anything. But because the the school district, you know, has they do have some things in place. We just haven't had to we haven't had to deal with it with within him in terms of some of the you know the deeper elements of the social emotional learning that you know comes with you know all of that that's happening and you know the gender affirming stuff that you see going on we haven't yeah. he hasn't directly had to deal with that and and here's why it was important one of the questions i was going to ask you about how long you had been teaching 
Um, my son has been fortunate to not have those issues from kindergarten to first grade, second grade, because he has had teachers, solid, solid teachers. And I did a podcast last year where I, I floated a theory that I came up with where I've labeled a certain uh, subset of school teachers as these new teachers. And they fall into a category of young men and women that have come out of college with an early childhood education major degree within the last five to eight years. And those are the teachers that for me, from the experience that I've seen and some people that I've talked to, even some other friends of mine who are also school teachers, these are the teachers within that window that they're, they're bent towards social justice issues and it's a focus for them. And so these are the teachers that I've seen that want to weave their personal lives into the classroom and they want to find creative ways to talk to their students about, you know, what goes on when they're not in school and, you know, the, you know, societal issues that don't necessarily go with the curriculum and these are these younger teachers that want to champion these social justice issues. And so when I saw when I saw you online, I was like, man, he looks pretty young. I said he might be one of these new teachers, but he definitely doesn't sound like one. Um, so when I hear you, when I was looking at your content, I was like, yeah, this this guy's he definitely doesn't fit into that that category, um, you know, that that I've defined and. These these are the teachers that they want to introduce that stuff. And so his kindergarten teacher, she was a 22 year, you know, 22 years in his second, his first grade teacher. She was, you know, four, 14, 15 years in his second grade teacher who he has now. I was worried about her because she was fresh out of school. She just had, you know, her she just finished. She said, oh, I just started. This is my second year teaching. And she was very young. I think she was like 22 years old or something like that. And I was kind of, I was, you know, pretty worried, but I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. And she ended up being one of those teachers that didn't fit into that category. And so we haven't had to deal with that. And so how do you view that being 17 year, you're a 17 year vet. How do you look at, you know, if, if you even notice, I mean, I'm sure you do that there's a line between the way you were brought up to start, you know, your educational career as an instructor, as an educator, and how some of these newer teachers are coming out. Yeah, yeah. So I I graduated in 2000, the, the fall semester of 2006. And okay. I think a lot of this really started in around 2014 and 15 for a bunch mm -hmm. of different reasons. And John Height, the social psychologist, kind of breaks it down for a bunch of reasons. But um, a lot of the newer teachers, like a little bit younger than me, they haven't had viewpoint diversity, especially in colleges, colleges of education, mm -hmm. college of education, people get into teaching. Something that, that I think your audience should know about them is we're a soft hearted lot. Like we're not the like the people who want to go and teach children are generally not the same who want to sit behind a computer and code or are not mm. the same people who it's weird because they're both service jobs, but who are going to go off and be police officers like we're, we're very soft hearted and soft hearted people. Uh, that, that, that's going to lead to a lot of like the, the critical race theory stuff and the gender affirming mm -hmm. care stuff because they're empathetic, but the, 
empathy exists in us, you know, from a biological standpoint to basically care for our babies when our babies are crying, you know, you have kids right. when the babies are crying, you know, you have to feel their pain so that you are kind of triggered to go take care of them. But there's a flip side to that. Like empathy is taking care of essentially it's in us to take care of the ones who can't take care of themselves. But the flip side of that is the mama bear thing. Mm -hmm. is if you catch yourself between a mama bear and her cubs, that's the most vicious animal in the forest. Right. And that's why you see the people who are very empathetic and very soft in general can be the most vicious mm. is because if they see you as a threat to this marginalized individual or group, then they become extremely vicious. And the, the, the critical race theory stuff um, which kind of has just become like a catch-all, but essentially right. this, this, you know, critical race theory, uh, I don't know if you've gone into any podcast, but, you know, it, I believe it does have a place in like law schools and stuff like that. The idea yes. that laws can exist that have, you know, racist undertones and have, have resulted in disproportionate outcomes for certain minorities is a really important thing to be like, this doesn't look like it's racist right. on its on its face, but it actually is. And I think the war on drugs or something like that would be a great example. Yes. But what when it gets applied in school is a lot of this idea of looking at everything through that lens. So critical race theory is kind of like, let's look at all laws mm -hmm. and see if maybe there's some racist things built into it that we don't see. And when you apply that to everything, where is the racism here? Where is the racism there? If you keep looking for something, you'll eventually find yes. it. And I think that that's kind of what's what's going on in a lot of schools is they turn almost everything into a racial conversation. We're seeing that bleed out into society, how everything is racist. You know, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars <laughs> yeah. is somehow about white supremacy. You know what right. I mean? Like everything <laughs> becomes that uh, because that's the lens that you're kind of choosing to, to see things through and, and setting up young kids to see the world in such a cynical way, I think is really, really harmful. Uh, the gender affirming care stuff, kind of similar things. You take a extremely marginalized group. So kids who are on the LGBTQ kind of category, whatever that is, is like they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. They feel like an outcast. So we want to support them. We want to support them. And I understand that. But in doing that, you're you're letting them, you're not, you're, you're taking away sometimes some very important boundaries and understandings of reality for these kids and, and helping them to, to see reality is a, is a wonderful thing while also helping them through their 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 struggles. I think that that can be done, but instead it becomes some sort of weird um, kind of like application of whatever this per this child says is their truth. And that can get mm -hmm. really dangerous because part of our job as adults is to help young people understand what is true and what is right. not and, and give them some boundaries because even as adults, like, I don't know most things about reality. Reality is quite complex. When you're a little kid, you don't know up from down at all. Right. You need a little bit of guidance on this is up and this is down. And if a kid is, you know, they do have gender dysphoria or something like that, that'll persist. You don't need to push right. them into it. They, that'll happen. If they're gay, they're going to be gay and you don't have to promote it. They right. will just do it. And I, I think that that's, I think we've just kind of over, kind of overcompensated because these are groups that we're not given any kind of support. And now we're going so far in the support category that we're, that we're actually causing a lot of harm and, and, and disrupting a lot of important things. I think. I agree. I agree. And I want to say, first of all, thank you to um, affirming 
something that I said on my podcast mm. when when I talked about um, critical race theory in terms of it being a catch all. And, and yeah. that was one of the things that I was trying to relate to this this lady when I was speaking to her. And she said, well, what's your problem with it? And I said, my problem, one is it's a blanket for everybody. It's a blanket for all solutions and it doesn't apply. And then she said, well, don't you think that there should be equity? You know, don't you want equity in education? And I said, well, no, I'd rather have equality in education. You know, I said, because equity doesn't look the same for everybody. It's just, it just don't matter how we make it, want to make it so, it's just not, it's impossible. I mean, Thomas Sowell said a man is not equal to himself on any given day. You know, so, so she, it was very hard for her to, to, re, to reconcile that. And because she, like she's, and I love that analogy that she said about they get empathetic about how they feel about these issues. And so they become the mama bear and that's kind of causes them to double down on how they feel about it. And that's what I saw in my conversation with her. You know, I finally got to a point where she was saying that, well, these, these examples of critical race theory that you're seeing, I don't see them in my school. And I've been an educator here for 28 years and I've never seen it. And I told her, I said, well, you should say you haven't seen it yet because it's out there. And when I started sending her examples, she said, well, nobody's teaching. We're not teaching critical race theory. And I said, well, I understand that you're not saying to your students, okay, class, take out your critical race theory books. I said, I know that that's not happening. I said, but it is happening in praxis. And I said, these examples of teachers, you know, going viral saying, show me an example of teaching critical race theory without telling everybody you're teaching critical race theory. And when I would, show her these examples she finally asked me to stop sending her messages and that's mm. how it that's how the conversation ended huh. and to me that was unfortunate but you know i think that you know what she said is these these they feel so deeply for what they they think that these students are going through and and they want to help in a way that they say well you know my job is you know part of it is to help uh, these students, you know, in every way that I possibly can. And so thank you for saying that because I, it, it makes me know that I wasn't crazy when I floated that to her and she just couldn't receive it. And so when we have conversations with teachers like that, like what advice would you give to the average parent that is having, you know, issues like that with their, with their teacher? Like how should they approach these subjects as somebody who's on the inside looking out? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I try to answer this as much as I can to people. Cause I get asked that question a lot. Like how do we talk to teachers who are in this situation? Um, I would say lean into curiosity. I mean, we are curious. I mean, you are curious about like, why, what is the benefit of this? Or what, why do you think that this is a good idea? Like, and what we tend to do is we do a lot of like rhetorical questions. Like, mm -hmm. how could you possibly teach this as opposed to like really trying to understand? And I think that there's a lot, we saw a lot of this like post COVID at these right. school board meetings and the parents like screaming at their teachers for indoctrination and stuff. And I think that there's a lot, I think because a lot of parents are frustrated, but lean into like, really like what, 
what are you thinking? Why do you think that this is going to be good to tell, like, if you're whatever, let's say you're like a white teacher and you're telling black kids, like little, you know, whatever, middle schoolers, that they are, you know, oppressed and that the world is basically out to get them and the odds are stacked against them in all these ways. So it's going to be really hard for them and all this. Like asking them, like, how do you see this as benefiting them? as opposed to an approach along the lines of something like no one can keep you down. You know, you're just as capable. You got all, you got this, blah, 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 blah. You know, like you mentioned um, Thomas soul. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't like a lot of the book banning that's going on mm -hmm. um, like in Florida and stuff like that, because I, the way I see it is like, if you're going to, let's just add more books. So right. if you have an issue, like let's say um, at a professional development that you the teachers at, at your kid's school are reading how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Right. Um, I think a lot of parents would say, get that book out of their hands, where what I would say is, why don't you bring in mm -hmm. uh, John McCorder's Woke Racism or yes. bring in a Thomas Sowell book or yes. bring in a, a book from another perspective and then compare them and see who puts forth the best arguments. Uh, you know, I had Eric Smith on my podcast who wrote um, a, a rhetorical critique of critical race theory and about Ooh. it's called like the the semblance of of empowerment or something like that. And, you know, I think that instead of banning books, let's just say let's let's have a real competition of ideas here. And I think that's what Thomas Sowell is so good at is he right. just he's such like a, you know, cut right to the chase. Show me the evidence type of person. And and he is I mean, find me one school in the country that reads a Thomas Sowell book, like even his basic economics books and stuff mm -hmm. like that, like no one will, will teach him. And I think that's yeah. the problem is, is a lot of these teachers just have never been presented with another side. When all this George Floyd stuff was going on in the, the early, uh, you know, spring 2020, I asked these teachers that were posting all this, like, you know, pro, you know they were saying like uh, platform black voices and black, black, mm -hmm. black voices. And then I, I was looking at the black voices that they were talking about. I was like, they're all, on the political left. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the political left, but I was like, what about the perspectives of conservative black voices? And right. one of these very prominent teachers said, well, are they saying anything different? And I was like, well, John McWhorter says that anti-racism might be more dangerous than racism. So I'd say, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the exact opposite. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah. really? Yeah. You know, like, like, like this idea that this is the way, especially for, for, I think like white liberal teachers, right. that this is the way that black people think. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really dangerous thing to, to, to promote to everybody, but right. no, I mean, your students, like this is the, the black way to think is a really, I, I don't know. It's, I don't know what else yeah. it would be. That's a bigoted way of, of right. saying like, yeah. that all black people think the same. I mean, if you would say that about any group, I think that's absurd. It's that, yeah. that's what's going on. It's, it's crazy to, to hear that that happens and how, you know, we get marginalized into these these blanket groups of where, you know, certain people are, you know, well, if this is this way, it's all of you. I had to tell somebody that, you know, when they we were I was having a conversation with somebody, and they said, well, you know, 50 uh, percent of all crime that's happening in America is committed by black people. And I said, that's not that's not true. And. He said, sure it is. I said, I'm not out here committing crime. I said, nobody in my family is doing that. And I said, what they should be saying is 50% of crime is being committed, committed by black criminals. And it's all in the wording and how we get, you know, that's how we get tricked by the way this information is presented to us in the wording. And I love that idea of 
let's just present the opposite. If we give these people, if it's a red pill, blue pill moment and give them an opportunity to choose, then, you know, we've done our job in terms of trying to bring some sense of balance to this. And when all of these, you know, these, these parents get upset um, about, you know, I was listening to, there was a lady in, in um, Colorado who was upset that she found out her daughter uh, was, going to an after-school program that her daughter thought, the, the student thought it was one thing, but after she went to like the second or third after-school program, she found out it was like a gender-affirming trans type of situation. And she was targeted by, you know, the school counselor as this young lady as somebody who might potentially be trans. And so... The mother was upset, obviously, and I don't and I don't agree with that that type of thing happening in school. But in my mind, the solution is, OK, well, if they're going to have the trans kids have their own collective safe space club after school, that's fine. But in the classroom next door or across the hall, can the, the religious kids have like a prayer meeting at the same time? Like, can we can we offer a solution to kids? Like, if we're going to have some balance instead of saying, OK, well, if you're going to do this, then we we should be allowed to have our group that comes to meet and have a Bible study or something like that. And people didn't want to hear that. And so to, to see to see that, like, I'm not against book banning the same way I'm not against, you know, hate speech. I think that is just, you know, there's speech that you don't like. There's, you know, everybody internalizes what something is said to them differently. And so for me, you know, the, the whole hate speech thing, I don't, I don't take to that the way other individuals do, but I'm not into silencing people either because they should be allowed to say what they say, or, you know, there's, you know, I just think that they should be allowed because I don't want anybody constricting what I have to say, but when it, the shoe is on the other foot, they don't, it doesn't, reconciling their minds that way. And so I 100% agree with you that we need to, if we're going to let this in, then we should let this in so that there's a balanced argument and allow these kids to choose and see which one wins. And I think the reason we don't see that, and you'll tell me if you agree or not, is a lot of these kids, you know, are smarter than we give them credit for. And so when they start to filter through the alternatives to what's being presented to them, they may choose the alternative. And some of these people are aware of that and they don't want to take that chance. Do you think that that is possible that that is a situation that could be happening? Yeah. And I think that the internet is, you know, exposing these kids to a lot of viewpoints that they weren't given. I had a, a kid that I taught, uh, who's, he was, is the most, it was like a 0% white schools in East LA and there was mostly right. Hispanic, but he was one of the black kids there and he got out went to the military and then he uh, contacted me like three or four years after graduating. It was just like, Hey, Mr. Rouge, how come no one told me about these black conservatives? <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> He's like, he like just found out about them. And he was just like, I feel very duped. I feel mm. like I was told that like, this is the way that I'm supposed to think my whole life. And it turns out that there's millions of people that don't think like this, but that look like me. Right. You know, I had Leah Scott on my podcast, who was a, a recent mm -hmm. high school graduate. I don't know if you heard that one. She was um she was really great. She was she was like a, an activist with like their the and you know I forget what it was. It was like the Black Student Union or something like that at her school. Right. I'm in Seattle and she just like 
started to just question things and became more conservative and was really, you know, like, um, like shunned by her, yeah. by her peers for her viewpoints and stuff. Like that. So there's a lot of pressure to, to not do it. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily like a conservative. I get labeled that way, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily, I don't usually vote that way. Um, I'm just a viewpoint diversity person. I like balance. Right. No, I think there are positives of conservatism and negatives of conservatism, positives of liberalism and negatives of liberalism. And I just want to try and understand them best as possible. But we're not doing that. But I think the Internet's opening it up. And I think there's enough opportunities now that if you are more conservative and you're a POC, you know, a person of color or something, then you can whatever it is, um, then you can. Uh, you can start to see like, huh, these are some interesting points, but there is still that stigma around being um, conservative and a minority, whether even being like conservative gay person or something where you are like a traitor or something like that. I don't think that's the way it really plays out too much in like the real world because I have friends who are in like rural Georgia who are black and they're like, yeah, like we're good old boys who like, you know, hunt animals and, (laughs) and, you know, drive trucks and you know, they're rednecks. They wear MAGA hats and stuff like that. So, I mean, like, I think that just when it comes to like the media, though, the media portrays um, a lot of of black conservatives, I think just using that specifically as like some sort of negative. There's that movie Uncle Tom Mm -hmm. about the about the plight of of them and what they have to go through and stuff like that. I think it's really unfair because you should be able to think any way you want and not be ridiculed. It doesn't this this idea that like one side is good and the other side is evil. When, regardless of what it is, it could be a lot of conservatives saying like the you know the left is just evil and all that kind of stuff. I think that's all nonsense in it, and uh, but but that still gets portrayed a lot and unlike the in the media. I agree, and and I'm very I'm very much about balance um, as well because yep. I should I should be able to to make the choice on what I agree with, and you know my friends um, and I and I say this to people a lot when they say, well, how can you vote, you know, with the conservative mindset? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, it's, it's easy because, <clears throat> you know, I look at my, you know, I look at everything. First of all, for me, I look at everything through, you know, a biblical worldview uh, as, as my foundation. And so for me, it, all I had to, the choice was as simple as me taking my morals and my core ethics and lining, let, you know, seeing which one, which platform lines up more closely to my morals and ethics. And that's how I make my judgment on how I should vote or what, you know, which way I lean. And I try to tell some of my friends, I say, listen, I'm not telling you that you have to vote Democrat. I'm not telling you that you have to vote Republican. I am telling you to examine both options and then do an internal um, inventory on how they line up with how you feel as a person, you know, your moral ethics or your moral code, whatever your moral code is, that compass that, you know, causes you to make the right decision or a quality decision in life. And then lean that way. I said, if, if for you, if it's Democrat, then fine. If it's Republican, then that's fine too. But you made the choice and you were able to do it in all honesty and sincerity. And I think when you make it such a a stark contrast between, oh, you have to do that, do it this way, or you're this, and you have to do it that way, or you're that, or you know these people get vilified, you know, in society and on social media because they think differently. And I had to tell somebody, you know, do you know how many Democrats out there out there that 
love the Second Amendment? Do you know how many yeah, Democrats right. that are out there that are pro-life? I said, you all want to make these issues solely, you want to place them at the feet of conservatives and Republicans, and that's not what's happening in the real world. Like, it's 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 just not. And people don't know how to reconcile that in their brains. And I, and you're right, the, the Internet is the culprit, uh, you know, to, to all of it. So, yeah. so I'll ask you this question, and 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 this might be a a heavy one, and 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 we'll we'll get out of here on this one. Uh, I've enjoyed this discussion thoroughly, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, for sure. If you could, you know, I know you're not in the public school system now because you've moved into the private private sector, and if you could, if they came to you, I know this will happen in a in a in a distant fantasy world if they say mr roosh how would you fix the public school system what would you say or do you have a response i i do think that we need some sort of of competition mm -hmm. um i think that the 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 fact that the big teachers you Problem. Uh, Thomas Sowell actually, we were just mentioned he, but he wrote a book on charter schools, and I know, um, I'd even in Chicago and New York, uh, they do they do work. There's some that are terrible, but they do work. Um, giving that that option, I think that, uh, you know, uh, what's it, Cory Booker? Cory Booker, mm -hmm. when he was the the mayor of Newark was in a, in a documentary called Waiting for Superman about charter schools. And he was a huge proponent of charter schools in Newark public mm -hmm. schools, so much so that I was living in Los Angeles and I applied to move to Newark to work at one of these charter schools because wow. of him, because wow. he was such a powerful um, force in, in pro uh, charter schools. But then he becomes a senator and he goes to Washington, D.C., and he recently voted against charter schools. So, wow. so there's this... It was really disappointing, but what happens is you have to end up like towing the party line. Apparently, for you know, the the idea is that you know, I guess the Democrats are anti-charter school now mm -hmm. um, because the teachers unions vote Democrat and they're very powerful and that you know they have to appease the those voters. But the the teachers unions were served a purpose. They're, they're they were great mm -hmm. for getting a living wage. I mentioned the average salary in in LA. Public. Public schools, LAUSD, is like $75,000 a year. That's thanks to uh, teachers' unions. So right. thank you, teachers' unions. And like most unions, once what once your job is to get better benefits and better you know working conditions and stuff like that, better wages, what happens when you achieve that? You have to keep moving the goalposts. And mm -hmm. that's essentially what's happening, especially when it's a public sector union, because you're negotiating not against you know, Jeff Bezos or someone like that who has to calculate, but against the government who's just kind of printing money. Right. I think that that, I think the teachers unions are getting too powerful. They tried to keep schools closed during COVID and all of that kind of stuff. I think that the way that they do tenure where teachers are, it's almost impossible to get fired. You work mm -hmm. in public school for three years, you get tenure. It's almost impossible to get fired. They just shuffle you around if you're terrible at your job. I mean, most jobs, if you are incompetent, then you lose it. And teaching is not one of those. Yeah. So I think that we have to give more freedom. I think we have to give more, um, is a lot of, you know, facets to this, but like mm -hmm. we have to give uh, more freedom to the teachers to teach the way that they see fit. But also we have to, uh, we have to limit 
the the teachers unions and tenure to get more competition among the schools so it fits into a more free market system where you can send your kid to the school that is that is best uh i also think that there needs to be something on all of us talk about the responsibility element rights and responsibilities um the responsibility element of individual parents getting more involved in their child's mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. compulsory school it's good. Let's have an educated population. But whenever the government says, we will take this responsibility for you. So educating your, your children is supposed to be the parent's responsibility. But then when the school system says, we will do it for you, anytime you give, you abdicate responsibility, you're inviting tyranny. Right. So if you're not willing to get involved in the school, in the school board, go volunteer, go check up, go to all the parent teacher conferences and stuff like that, then of course the 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 school system is going to get out of hand because there's no one watching them. So right. I think that there's an in, I think that the system itself can change in the ways I, I laid out, but also we as individuals have to become more active in our kids' education. You know, the at best the average parents like, what'd you do in school today, Johnny? Yep. And Johnny's just like, nothing. <laughs> like, okay, have a good day. Like, right. like that's it. It's like you got to know what's going on. What are they teaching? What are the books? Why are they teaching it? What's going on? What you know? Who's running the school board? Who's designing the curriculum? What are these textbooks? What do the textbooks say? I think that we have given up. We all of us citizens have given up a lot on the importance of our our next generation's education. We've kind of left it up to the government just to to handle. And you're seeing the results now. So I think that we have to do it individually as well. Um, on top of the other things that I laid out. That was great. That, I mean, <laughs> that. It's a big problem though, right? Yeah, it I is mean, a big a, problem. It's a very yeah. big problem, you know, and, and I could, I could go down um, because you mentioned something that made me want to ask another question, but I want to respect our time. Uh, and so maybe uh, we can make arrangements down the line to do this again um, yeah. and, and broach the subject of, you know, your thoughts on homeschool uh, and 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 this new surgence of you know parents that are pulling their kids out, and you see all of these, you know, people on social media that are advocating for homeschool, um, and they're 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 having all these organizations, and um, and but I think that what you laid out is, for me, I think it's an easy plan to implement, but it's so much red tape to get around, to get to some of these, these simple solutions, because it means that somebody is going to have to go without somewhere. And that usually means some special interest group, you know, along the way. Um, and, and it's just a lot of, a lot of red tape and, and confusion that comes along with that. But I can totally get behind that plan. And, you know, who knows, maybe one day you will be asked to fix the public school system and, and you got a plan already laid out. And so um, I appreciate that perspective. I appreciate the insight that you brought today because, you know, the stuff that happens in school, I talk about it a lot uh, on this podcast because, you know, I have kids that are coming into it. My daughter is in, um, she's in preschool now. And so she'll be going into the public school system in the next two years. Um and it's very important to me as a kid, as a parent that has kids that will go through this because I see the difference in what school was like for me and what it's like for these kids today. Um, and so thank you for stopping by, man, to, to, to chop it up with me about this subject. It was very insightful and I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I did too. Thank you. Um, you know, I love being on the other side, just answering questions. It's nice. I'm yeah. always asking yeah. them on podcasts, but I do have a plan to um, release homeschool curriculum and stuff like that. So if that's something that your audience is interested in, or if there is like a facet of homeschool parents who, who, who listen to your podcast, I would love to come on and talk about the stuff that I'll be releasing. It'll probably be in like August. Okay. Uh, if I, if I can get it all done. Um, but that might be something, you know, another angle to talk about homeschooling and how to do, you know, how can we do this on our own? If the schools are going to drop the ball to educate our kids well, and the average, you know, you know, American who works, you know, a corporate job, or whatever, might not remember the details of, you know, prohibition in the 1920s or something like that. You know, how can they use the curriculum that I'm going to make available to to give to their kids so they can at least understand the history and then uh, how to how it kind of um, will help them also understand what's going on currently, because everything that I'm going to put out there is going to be directly related to uh, the present. So it's not just the past, but you study the past to understand right. the present and prepare for the future. So yeah, that might be something we could do, you know, absolutely. maybe before the end of summer. Absolutely. Great. I would love to, um, I absolutely would love to do it. So everyone that's listening to this, please, again, like I said, please subscribe and follow to the cylinder radio podcast. It is on Apple, uh, iTunes. You also do it on YouTube as well. Yeah. Please subscribe to that channel. This is some great content. Um, I've, I've started, you know, listening to uh, the episodes there. It's a wealth of information. Uh, I mean, you, you heard it here today. Uh, and, and, and Will is, is, is passionate about education. You can, it clearly comes through that he cares about what he's doing. Uh, and it bleeds into, you know, how he cares for his students. And so I would say bravo to you. Uh, please keep it up. Please keep the same energy because we need teachers like you in the classroom. These students need it. And I know it's not an easy job. Uh, I know, you know, teaching is not, it's not, you know, my mother-in-law would say it's not as honorable as a position as it used to be when she was teaching. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I know that. And, and when I hear your passion, I can appreciate it. And so I know that your students do too. So, uh, thank you again, sir, for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. That's really encouraging, man. Sometimes I'm like, uh, is it, is it worth it to go online and do all this stuff talking to my phone? Like I do. Um, but you know, so when you say stuff like that, hearing it from, from, from you, it really, um, helps. It gives me a lot of encouragement to be like, all right, I'm not just doing this for no reason. Like there is a, there, there, this is resonating with people. So, so I appreciate you as well. Oh yeah. It's definitely resonate resonating with me. And I know the listeners, uh, it'll resonate with them as well. And so mm -hmm. we will definitely make plans to, to bring you back to talk about the homeschool angle and, um, and yeah, so thank you, man. So listen with that, we'll wrap up this show. And, uh, like I say every week, no matter where you go and no matter what you do, always remember that common sense is uncommon. Thank you guys. Mm -hmm.